Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Tonight on The Readout. Are you aware of any members of Congress? I guess Mr. Gates and Mr. Brooks, Mr. Gomer asked for one as well. And Mr. Perry asked for a part too. I'm sorry. I need to Mr. Perry, did he talk to you directly? Yes, he did. Ah, yes, MAGA Congressman Scott Perry did ask for a pardon. And new reporting sheds new light on why he might have wanted one. Perry's text messages following the 2020 election reveal the integral role he played in Trump's plot to overturn Joe Biden's victory. Also tonight, the Koch network goes all in for Nikki Haley. Apparently, they see her as a mainstream alternative to Trump. But history suggests that she's very much a radical right winger in sheep's clothing. But we begin tonight with what has become a new pattern in Donald Trump's pitiful defenses for his many, 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 many legal woes. It is no longer enough to attack judges or prosecutors, which, as we have all seen and heard, Trump clearly has no problem doing. But now he's shown how small a man he really is by choosing to go on the attack against their spouses, family members and staff, which has been shown to lead to ongoing harassment and threats by Trump's faithful followers. Just this year, we've seen Trump go on the attack against the wife and family of Judge Juan Mershon, who is overseeing the Manhattan case tied to Trump's hush money payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels. I have a Trump-hating judge with a Trump-hating wife and family whose daughter worked for Kamala Harris and now receives money from the Biden-Harris campaign and a lot of it. He has done the same against the wife and family of special counsel Jack Smith. Openly, he's a Trump hater, and his wife is even more of a Trump hater. I wish her a lot of luck, but he's he's a bad Trump hater and she's a Trump hater. He's a raging and uncontrolled Trump hater, as is his wife. The Trump hating prosecutor in the case, he's a. His wife and family despise me much more than he does, and he decides, I think he's about a 10. They're about a 15 on a scale of 10. And just yesterday, Trump began levying the same attacks against the wife of Judge Arthur N. Goron, who's overseeing his New York civil fraud trial, including claiming that she and the judge's law clerk, who Trump has also made the focus of his ire, are the ones controlling the New York trial. Mind you, Trump's attacks are based on tweets he claims are from the judge's wife. She told Newsweek that not only are the tweets not hers, but that she does not even have a Twitter account. In a positive move today, a New York Court of Appeals has reinstated a gag order against Trump in that case again, prohibiting him from making any comments about anyone on Judge Ngoron's staff. You may recall that the judge originally announced the gag order after Trump made his first attack against Goron's law clerk to reporters right outside the courtroom. Judge Ngoron responded to today's ruling, warning Trump's attorneys in court that he intends to rigorously and vigorously enforce it. He did not make any mention of Trump's attacks on his wife, 
who at this time would not be covered under the present gag order. And this comes as we are still awaiting a ruling on the fate of the gag order in the federal election case, which has a larger scope, prohibiting Trump from attacking potential witnesses, court employees, prosecutors, and yes, their families too. Joining me now is Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst, and Dave Ehrenberg, state attorney for Palm Beach County, Florida. Thank you both for being here. I just want to really quickly read you Trump's, uh, Chris Kyes, his attorney, Chris Kyes' statement on the gag order. Tragic day for the rule of law in a country where the First Amendment is sacrosanct. President Trump, he's not president, may not even comment on why he thinks he cannot get a fair trial. Hard to imagine a more unfair process and hard to believe this is happening in America. Lisa Rubin, uh, it is hard to imagine. What is really hard to imagine is that Trump actually believes that he is, quote unquote, not getting a fair trial because of the judge's wife. And yet, was there any explanation as to why the uh, gag order was not only reinstated, but not expanded to include the families? of the people involved. Well, Joy, generally wouldn't be the place of an appellate court to expand a gag order or rewrite it in that way. In terms of why Judge Angoran has not written a new gag order to cover his wife, I can't say. But I think the explanation in the gag order wasn't much of an explanation at all. It just said that having read the papers that had been filed by all three of the interested parties, that's President, former President Trump and his lawyers, the New York Attorney General, Letitia James and her team, and Judge Angoran himself, as represented by the court system, the four judges in the appellate division in New York who heard this motion decided not only were they going to vacate the interim stay, but they were going to deny Trump's motion for a longer-term stay while his lawsuit against Judge Angoran for having imposed the gag order in the first place, which he continues to insist is unconstitutional, remains pending. The net-net of this, Joy, is that for the duration of the trial, Donald Trump and his lawyers will remain subject to this gag order because the pending appeal or petition will not be resolved in time for the trial to end. It will end on January 11th with closing arguments. Uh, you know, Dave, Donald Trump is a thug. I mean, that, that is just clear. He's been a thug from the time he ran for office, you know, getting his crowds to attack protesters in the inside of the actual, uh, uh, you know, events. Um, and he's now unleashed these attacks on People who aren't even connected to the case. They're just married to somebody that he's mad at. And these are the results of that. NBC has this headline about the deluge of threats against the judge and law clerks in Trump's civil fraud trial. They were detailed in this new court filing. His initial truth post that prompted the gag order resulted in hundreds of threatening and harassing voicemail messages that have been transcribed into over 275 single-spaced Pages. Last week, we learned that the wife uh, of this judge receives, I'm sorry, the clerk receives 20 to 30 calls a day to her personal cell phone and 30 to 50 messages a day on social media and personal email combined. So we know what the results and the threats are to the people that Trump is harassing. What possible enforcement threats can be made against him? Because he is a former president running for president. Joy, I'm a little disappointed at the lack of enforcement. You know, of all of his cases, only two judges, excuse me, only one judge has enforced a gag order, that's Judge Ngoron. There are two gag orders on the books. And Judge Ngoron enforced it twice for a total of $15,000. That's not a lot for a self-professed billionaire. 
And when Donald Trump supporters claim there's a two tier justice system, maybe they're right, but not in the way mm-hmm. they're thinking. They're right in that Donald Trump is being treated very differently than any other criminal defendant I know of. And as a prosecutor, if someone lashed out at the judge, the judge's family, attorneys, they would be they would have been sanctioned long ago, perhaps even wearing an orange jumpsuit. As of now, all we've seen is fifteen thousand dollars in fine. And Judge Ngorona is saying he's going to enforce this gag order rigorously. But, Joy, this gag order is already limited. It's only affects the judge's staff. No one else. Right. I mean, Lisa, this is the problem. The impact potentially on the people Trump is attacking is potential injury or worse, because Donald Trump leads what is a cult that includes violence, known violence, violence we've seen, violence we've seen on tape, violence we've seen people arrested for. His people, his base will threaten to kill anyone who they think doesn't like Trump, is a Trump hater. We've seen it. So, the, so, so essentially, the risks to the people he's attacking are huge. They are literally life and death. The risks to him, to Dave's point, are like a $15,000 fine. Has there been any indication that those risks are going to be ratcheted up in some way that will make an impact on this person? It's interesting that you ask that, Joy, because Judge Angoran, obviously today when he learned about the reinstatement of the gag order, he told all those assembled in his courtroom that it had been done. He affirmed that he intends to enforce it rigorously and vigorously. And when he fined Donald Trump previously, he made clear that— In addition to fines, he was prepared to ratchet it up beyond that, including it up to imprisonment. Whether or not the next violation will get to that point remains to be seen. It also remains to be seen whether Trump, who now will have to understand he'll live with this gag order throughout the duration of the trial, will provoke Judge Angoran to face that decision. There's a part of me that thinks he wants to because it is a fundraising juggernaut for him and nothing galvanizes Trump supporters like grievance. You know, Trump used to put himself up on a pedestal and project this atmosphere of, you want to be like me. Now he's brought himself back down and said to his supporters, I am you. And that identification with him, while bringing Trump down to earth in a way, also fuels this atmosphere of violence and hatred because they believe that he is their retribution, as he keeps telling them. Yeah, I bet you'll be scared if he goes to jail, though. That she, I mean, bullies are usually cowards. Uh, David, let me go to the other case, because there's, there is ABC News uh, reporting on the other—one of his many other cases. This is the one where he stole classified documents and took them home to his ballroom and put them in the bathroom. Apparently, one of his lawyers, who's still his lawyer in another case, Jennifer Little, has told the special counsel's team that she told Donald Trump that if he did not comply with the Justice Department's demand that he turn over those classified documents, it would absolutely be a crime. She's told the special counsel's team that Donald Trump absolutely understood what she said. This came before Trump allegedly directed Walt Nada and Carlos de Oliveira, his, we don't know, maybe low-paid staff, to remove dozens of boxes and hide them from his own lawyer, Mr. Corcoran, before Mr. Corcoran went down to do this search. Give us the implications of that. One of his own lawyers say that she told him straight up, it's a crime if you don't give the documents back or if you or if you give the stuff back after your lawyer has certified that you have. It goes to Trump's state of mind, which is a required element when you're dealing with obstruction and the Espionage Act about willful retention. Here we have another lawyer who informed Trump that he had to give back the documents. He was put on notice 
So when Trump says, well, the Presidential Records Act protects me, I, I knew that I didn't have to give it back. No, your lawyer is contradicting you. And the other lawyer, Evan Corcoran, has contemporaneous notes that Jack Smith has. So they corroborate each other. And it's really damning when your own lawyers are your best witnesses against you. And Joy, this is why this Mar-a-Lago documents case is the strongest case against Trump of all the cases. But it's also because Judge Cannon has been slow walking the case, the Mm -hmm. least likely to be tried before the election. Yep. She's been helping him out a whole lot. Uh, I'm going to leave it there. Lisa Rubin, David Ehrenberg, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, it is tempting to look at the MAGA wing of Congress and write it off as a clown show. But behind the funny makeup, oversized shoes, and squeaky red noses, there is a real threat to American democracy and the rights that many of us now take for granted. Congressman Adam Schiff joins me when The Readout continues. This episode is brought to you by Paycor, the HR and payroll software made for leaders. It's never been harder to recruit, hire, and engage workers. That's why HR leaders and frontline managers depend on Paycor for all things people management, from onboarding and performance reviews to compensation and benefits. Learn more at paycor.com leaders. That's P-A-Y-C-O-R dot leaders. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. In their latest attempt to show that they are both dangerous and a total farce, House Republicans are moving full speed ahead with their effort to impeach President Biden. With absolutely no evidence, they'll meet tomorrow. With absolutely no evidence, they'll meet tomorrow to discuss those plans, including a potential vote to formally authorize an impeachment inquiry, again, without direct evidence of any wrongdoing by the president. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had refused to schedule a formal formal vote. But according to Republican leaders, this time the vote would be to reinforce subpoenas from the House Oversight Committee, which is the height of hypocrisy since two key members of that very committee, Jim Jordan and Scott Perry, defied subpoenas from the House January 6th committee. And a court filing unsealed briefly Wednesday by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals sheds new light on just how closely Congressman Scott Perry was involved in trying to mount a coup for Donald Trump, including texts between Perry and Justice Department lawyer Jeffrey Clark during the period when Trump was considering installing Clark as acting attorney general to push claims of non-existent voter fraud. On December 30, 2020, Perry texted Clark, quote, POTUS seems very happy with your response. I read it just as you dictated. Clark replied, I'm praying. This makes me quite nervous, and I wonder if I'm worthy or ready. Perry responded, you are the man. I have confirmed it. 
God does what he does for a reason. Within days of those texts, Trump formally tried to install Clark as acting attorney general. His plot was thwarted by a threat of mass resignations by Justice Department officials if Clark was put in charge. Joining me now is Congressman Adam Schiff of California, who served on the January House January 6th committee. Um, Congressman, I just want to get you to re- react to the fact that some of your fellow members of Congress, duly elected members, were this active in this attempt to sub- subvert the Justice Department, basically hijack it and steal the election for Trump. Well, it just shows how little their oath of office really meant to them. Uh, Here they were conspiring to overturn the election. Uh, In the case of the text messages you read, you had a representative Perry uh, reaching out to Jeffrey Clark, someone completely unqualified to be attorney general. An environmental lawyer. An environmental lawyer, uh, not particularly well thought of uh, at the department, um, but whose only real qualification was his willingness to do anything for Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, his willingness to enlist others to try to help overturn the election, uh, his basic unscrupulousness was his qualification. Uh, and nothing short of a threat of mass resignation stopped Trump from appointing him. But certainly Perry didn't stop. Perry was trying to push him, trying to elevate him, trying to put him in a position where he could use the power of the Justice Department to help overturn the election. Uh, and, and what what do you make of the fact that I mean, some of the key architects of the attempts to overthrow the election have been rewarded with more power. You're the current Speaker of the House was one of the main people, if not the main person, pushing the big lie, trying to get people to sign on to overthrow the election. Scott Perry, who sought a pardon, according to Cassidy Hutchinson. None of these people have paid a price. The people who've paid a price are people like Liz Cheney, who's out of power and out of office. Well, sadly, that's exactly right. And indeed, when you look at the effort to replace McCarthy, uh, Thomas Emmer, uh, who was eminently qualified, um, was essentially disqualified because he wasn't a proponent of the big lie. Uh, and what we found out in that speakership fight was the prerequisite to being the leader of the Republican Party in Congress is you must be willing to lie for Donald Trump. Yeah. You must be willing to undermine our democracy. If you're not, you're not qualified to run this conference. Uh, And so we did end up with a speaker who was very involved in the litigation to overturn the election. Uh, And we still have a Judiciary Committee chairman who, as you point out, ignored subpoenas of the January 6th committee and was also one of the architects in the House of trying to overturn the election. The only ones who did pay a political price were Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, those that uh, lived up to their oath of office. And uh, I think history will reflect very well on them. Uh, But it has been a bitter shock to me and I think many others that the Liz and Adams have been so few in number that that the vast, vast majority of of Republicans cared far more about holding their office than they ever did about the oath of office uh, or anything else. I love that you presume that history will still be legal to tell. Uh, So I'm going to hold on to that hope. Uh, Speaking of Jim Jordan, that's who you were talking about, uh, who is a, a committee chair. This is what CNN is reporting. This is out of Liz Cheney's new book, which I cannot wait to read. During our GOP conference call, Cheney writes that House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan was dismissive of the legal process for challenging the election results and didn't seem to think the rules mattered. The only thing that matters is winning, Jordan said, according to Cheney. So he doesn't even necessarily believe it. I think that is perfectly consistent with what I've observed of Jim Jordan, which is it's always been my sense that for him, politics is just a game. It's like a sport. There's your team. There's our team. You lie, you cheat, you steal. You do whatever you can to win. 
Uh, and I'm convinced that if he got benched by the Republicans, he would offer to play for the Democrats. Mm. Uh, I don't think there's any real ideology there. I think it's self-promotion, uh, kind of uh, an enjoyment of the sport of it. But in terms of um, policy, in terms of uh, devotion to country, I don't see any evidence for that. Well, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Somebody who does seem to be a true believer or he's a very good actor. This is one Clay Higgins, who is one of the weirdest members uh, of the opposing caucus. He seems to believe that the FBI did January 6th. Here he is talking about what he thinks needs to happen to Jack Smith. Take a look. So I just say that his, his days are numbered and American patriots are not going to stand idly by, good sir, uh, and, and allow our, our republic to dissolve. We, we are prepared to fight legally and peacefully and within the parameters of the Constitution uh, with every every ounce of our might and, and focus. Well, at least he said legally and peacefully within the bounds of the Constitution. But what in the world is he talking about? I don't know what he's talking about, uh, but you do see this phenomenon. You see it with Trump. Uh, you see thinly veiled and not even thinly veiled threats. And then you see uh, an effort to equivocate on the other side uh, so that the listener can take whatever message they want from yeah. it. Um, but but without uh, any mistaking, what he is saying is the justice system doesn't matter. Um, anyone who is prosecuting their party leader is therefore somehow illegitimate. The rule of law doesn't apply to Donald Trump. Uh, and that's where their base is. Yeah. Uh, and that is a radical departure from where either party has ever been. Um, in the past, I think people disavowed those that were involved in criminal activity um, and were reluctant to attack the justice system. Yeah. Uh, they would say, let the justice system do its will. Yeah. They would say, you know, we'll follow the evidence wherever it leads. Not anymore. Yeah. Not with not with this MAGA crowd. We are, we are out of time, but uh, our, our tomorrow is Santos, George Santos, going to get booted? He's going to get expelled? I think he is. And, yeah. and it's not an easy uh, issue in the sense of um, it's a change of precedent to go, go remove someone who hasn't been convicted. Sure. But the evidence is so substantial, the report's so bipartisan, yeah. uh, the credit so disqualifying yeah. that removing him is the right thing to do. Congressman Adam Schiff, uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, scary times, indeed. Uh, still ahead. America's top diplomat, Antony Blinken, is in the Middle East as the temporary truce is extended into day seven, allowing for the release of more hostages and the delivery of more humanitarian aid. Details next. room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! 
and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. In just a matter of hours, the seven-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is expected to come to an end, barring any last-minute extensions. After eight more hostages were released today. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the region meeting with leaders to discuss potentially extending the truce, as well as what comes next in Israel's military operation. Secretary Blinken says that in those meetings, he urged Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to take concrete steps to protect the lives of civilians in Gaza. The Biden administration's strategy regarding this conflict has been controversial, to say the least. The president's full-throated embrace of Netanyahu, the so-called bear hug, has earned him the ire of some in his own party. But at the same time, others are making a counterargument that the strategy put him in the diplomatic position to make this temporary ceasefire and the hostage releases happen at all. Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin writes, if Biden had listened to demands from the left to condition aid to Israel, publicly condemn its war operations and demand an immediate ceasefire, there is little chance any hostages would have been released or humanitarian aid increased. Biden understood two things his critics didn't. First, the U.S. has no power to order Israel around as if it were a vassal state. Israel will do what it must to survive, even without U.S. approval. It has conducted and will conduct military operations that its governments considers essential to its national security. Second, any Israeli government, no matter how arrogant, must be concerned with Israeli public opinion. If the Israeli public trusts and embraces the U.S. president, it will be inclined to support his views on the region and his strategic thinking. Joining me now is Shadi Hamid, columnist and editorial board member for The Washington Post, and Daniel Levy, former Israeli peace negotiator and president of the U.S. Middle East Project. Thank you both for being here. I'm excited to talk with both of you. I want to ask you both to sort of comment, and I'm going to start with you, Daniel Levy, on whether you agree with the premise um, of uh, Ms. Rubin's argument. I do not. Uh, first of all, I think had uh, the president, the administration done many of those things, we probably wouldn't be here in the first place. But secondly, I do believe America has those levers. And we're going to eventually have to see America leaning in and using some of those levers if we're not going to add to the horrendous death toll destruction that we're seeing in Gaza. But I would also say the following. Even if that is not the case, Israel should not be pursuing this mission with additional American weapons, additional American assistance, additional American diplomatic and political cover. At least throw that into the mix and see how it plays out in Israel. And at least then not be culpable yourself. You wouldn't be bleeding your international credibility, bleeding domestic support. And I imagine there would just be less bleeding full stop if America changed that position. I think she's got it fundamentally wrong. Um, Shadi, I'll, I'll go to you on the same question, because the, the sort of fundamental argument here is that Israel's sort of sense of siege, the sense the, the world is against us, we're all we've got. If the Americans aren't with us, well, to hell with them as well. We're going to protect our people. And after 
10-7 happened, they were going to do this anyway. They were going to bomb the living hell out of Gaza, and really there was nothing that could stop it. But that Biden, because he did the full bear hug, is now more popular in the Israeli street than Netanyahu is at this point, who was not doing much to get the hostages out, and that it's his leverage that he gained that actually got us to the ceasefire, this temporary ceasefire and the hostage releases we have now. What do you make of that? Yeah, so I disagree with that assessment. I think the bear hug strategy has failed. Um, Israel has not minimized civilian casualties. And even if you look at Blinken's comments in Israel, he's he's saying that Israel needs to have a clear plan to put a premium on protecting civilians. If you read between the lines, the implication is clear. He's suggesting that Israel has not put a premium on civilian protection up until now. And publicly, Biden officials have been careful about how they phrase these things. So they're they're saying the quiet part quietly. Um, some of their private uh, remarks have been more pointed. But I think the basic thing here is that um, without any sense of consequences for what Israel does, why should Israel listen to what Blinken or anyone else is saying? Um, and this is where I think the whole debate around conditions on military assistance becomes important. At the end of the day, the U.S. is the senior partner in this relationship with Israel. Israel is dependent on the U.S. Let's use our leverage, because if we don't use it now, when will we use it? And the civilian toll has just been so staggering, as we all know with more than two-thirds of the Gazan population displaced. So clearly Israel has not been particularly precise in its targeting. Clearly Israel has not taken care to protect civilians, as, as, by, as Blinken said. So I think now's the time to have a serious conversation about what's next. And it's worth noting that Biden, a few days ago, when he was asked about putting conditions on aid to Israel, he said it's, quote unquote, a worthwhile thought. So something is shifting. And I think there's a growing realization that sometimes you got to put pressure on your allies. That doesn't mean that Israel doesn't have a right to defend itself. Of course, Israel has a right to defend itself. But how it defends itself is absolutely crucial right now. Um, I don't know if we have time to play it, but I, I do have the actual comments. Let's play it very quickly. This is what uh, Mr. Blinken, Secretary Blinken said. I made clear that before Israel resumes major military operations, it must put in place humanitarian civilian protection plans that minimize further casualties of innocent Palestinians. That means taking more effective steps to protect the lives of civilians including by clearly and precisely designating areas and places in southern and central Gaza where they can be safe and out of the line of fire. It means avoiding further significant displacement of civilians inside of Gaza. It means avoiding damage to life-critical infrastructure, like hospitals, like power stations, like water facilities. Daniel Levy, is that still possible at this stage if this bombing continues? Well, the very simple answer is no, because if the bombing continues and is resumed, then given the scale of the humanitarian crisis already in place, and look at what Dr. Tadros from the World Health Organization said today, the absence of sanitary conditions, potable water, the spread of disease, 
So if the bombing resumes, you won't be able to bring in what's needed. And that humanitarian problem, in addition to people being directly killed by the bombings, is going to metastasize. But secondly, I think, I think it's just disingenuous to imagine that the way a military operation has proceeded thus far will radically change, given everything the Israelis themselves are saying. I would recommend a piece in the 972 website, which is an investigation inside Israel's calculated bombing of Gaza. So my fear is that it will go back to the massive destruction. Then eventually the administration will decide, okay, we have to lean in more. In those intervening period of time, we will have yet more casualties, and it's going to take time to walk Israel down from that. That should have begun long ago. It should have begun, if not then, then today. And Israel is still going to play in what I call this margin of malevolent maneuver. And Blinken and the administration should do their maximum to bring that to an end ASAP. And we've waited too long. And I fear the, the two elements in play here, which is the internal pressure inside Israel from the families, which now will increase, I believe, has to be matched by the kind of external pressure, which means a sustained public disagreement, probably, by the administration. I wish we had more time. We're going to have to bring you gentlemen back. Uh, we, we are one of our two favorite pairings, our, our favorite pairings to bring back. But we're going to have this conversation ongoing. Shadi Hamid, Daniel Levy, thank you both very much. And coming up, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is seen by many as a more mainstream alternative to Trump in 2024. Spoiler alert, everybody. She's not that mainstream. I'll explain after this. On Wednesday, the Koch-backed Americans for Prosperity announced their support for former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley for president. With seven weeks until the Iowa caucuses, the endorsement unlocks tens of millions of dollars and a network of volunteers that would ostensibly give Haley a boost. Mind you, in Iowa, Haley is running third in the polls against her former boss, Donald Trump, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. It's also ironic that AFP has decided to turn the page on Trump since their organization and the Koch brothers have done so much, including underwriting the Tea Party movement, to pave the way for Trump and his right-wing fanaticism, which is now the marker, the marker, of the Republican Party. Now, while she likes to pretend that she's, only the sen- she's the only sensible choice for the party, here are some key things to keep in mind about Nikki Haley. She is an ultra-conservative who would sign a six-week abortion ban if she were still governor and if she's president. She has close ties to Christian Zionist pastor John Hagee, who once asserted, quote, or I'm sorry, I'm not going to quote him. I'm just going to tell you what he asserted, that Adolf Hitler was half Jewish and was sent by God to drive Jews to Israel. Hagee suggested that it was Jews' disobedience of God that gave rise to their persecution. That's her friend. She repeatedly claims that America is not racist, even though her family was asked to leave multiple homes because the neighbors didn't want Indians living next to them. And her father could only find a job with an HBCU. Oh, and she's also an opportunist who in 2016 said anyone but Trump only to turn around and praise him and become his U.N. ambassador. Honestly, at this point, this endorsement is nothing more than theater meant to preview who will lead the party after Trump either loses again or his presidency for life ends in the natural way. Joining me now, David Korn, Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones and an MSNBC political contributor. I could have gone on and on and on. There's so much more about her. But you wrote a book about extremism. Does she count, in your view, as an extremist? I think she is, you know, she's playing footsie with the MAGA thing. Yeah. I mean, and she, but 
like with abortion and everything else, she really is trying to make an art form of having it both ways. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you mentioned her turnabout on, on Donald Trump. After January 6th, she said, party has to stop listening to him. It's time to move past Trump. And, you know, so she was out there with these other Republicans sure. saying, this is too much. Even for me, I work for the guy. This is a riot too far. Yeah. That was January 2021. Yeah. By April 2021, if you want to do the math, mm -hmm. that's three months. <laughs> yeah. That's only three months. Yeah. She was out there saying she would support Trump if go. he ran for president again. Yeah. Because she knows that you can't say no to MAGA. Mm -hmm. You know, even though she's trying to present herself as the reasonable alternative, and there are people like, like you know, the Coke net, in the Coke network, Jamie Dimon, the big banker right. came out today, and they are these are Republicans who want the tax cuts, yeah. don't care about climate change, they yeah. want deregulation, and they want to find a Republican other than Trump because they don't like the baggage and they think, you know, he's too erratic, particularly in foreign policy. So they are f moving to her, and I, I disagree slightly with what you said in the lead-in. Mm -hmm. I think they do believe that she has a shot. If you can get DeSantis out of the way, you know, and, and hope that maybe a, a cheeseburger or two slows Trump down or something, right. but that she's the, the better bet at this point in time. But the interesting thing is that some of the polling shows that DeSantis's voters, yeah. their second choice is Nikki. No. Oh. Tends to be Trump. A lot of them. <laughs> so, so they get so they get DeSantis out of the race. And yeah. it kind of makes sense if you think They'll about it. They'll go right it, back to Trump. Right, they, some of them may just go back to Trump. Yeah. There are a couple of things. I mean, I did cover the South Carolina, the, the taking down of the Confederate flag in South Carolina, sure. which she took great credit for. One must also note that she was firmly in favor of the Confederate flag when she was actually South Carolina governor. She sure. came in for it and only and t basically took advantage of the fact that Democrats in the state legislature engineered getting the flag taken down and foreign businesses were saying, yeah, we're leaving all these car manufacturing things. Mm -hmm. They're out of here if you don't take that down. But she's she tends to take credit for other people's ideas. I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah. One other thing. When you look at the AFP endorsement, this is what they said. Nikki Haley uh, presents a bold and robust strategy to tackle the inflation that is making everything more expensive for American families, addressing the out-of-control government spending and simplifying the tax code to benefit the American people rather than special interests. Simultaneously, she has the courage to advocate for reforms to entitlement system that makes promises it can't keep. That means she's for drill, drill, drill. She's for tax cuts for billionaires. She's for um, social, um, security um, reform. social security reform, meaning basically privatized social security. So all the things the Koch brothers want, that's Yes. The billionaires well, well, want. That's what they, yeah, so it's no surprise. And she has a more hawkish foreign policy than totally. Trump because Trump is just whatever. Yeah. There's no way. But, you know, she helped blow up the Iran deal. Mm -hmm. She didn't do very much to stop anything with North Korea. And I, I wrote something about, about her a couple of days ago because she had, she has what she calls her freedom plan, right? Mm. And part of her freedom plan is to put term limits, not just on politicians, but what she says, government bureaucrats. They can't work at the same job for more than five years. So think yes. about the people who run food and drug safety, run the TSA, counterterrorism experts, intelligence analysts, people down in Mexico at the border who run the, you know, the border yeah. patrol, that after five years, mm -hmm. after gaining all the expertise they have, we're going to say so long. We don't want you. Go by, goodbye. Yeah. And if you do that, who's going to go to work? People like Clay, you're going to replace essentially the same thing that happened to the, the House of Representatives and part of the Senate. Mm -hmm. You replace regular sort of esteemed Congress people 
with people like Clay Higgins. I mean, there were conspiracy theorists and Tea Party. There were people running who, everything. People who work on trade negotiations, climate change negotiations, who are there for years because it takes that long to sort of figure sure. things out. And there are different rounds. Yeah. And you're just going to kick them all out. Uh-huh. You know, but this is what she's doing to appeal to the anti-government, anti-expertise, exactly. know-nothingism of yeah. Trump magazine. They want the dude down the street and their cousin, you know, Joe to run things instead right. of people who actually know what they're doing because in their mind, those people of the deep state because they're experts and had went to college and they're, you know, they need to be thrown out and replaced with Joe the Butcher. Yeah, and people who supervise research at NIH. And we don't I mean, want you, that. We don't want that public health official. We want like a Robert F. Someone Kennedy who might have been around at the last pandemic. Yeah. We, don't we don't want them want around at the next no. one. No, no. Uh, okay, we're not letting David go. David's going to stick around just a bit because he's going to give us his thoughts on the passing of the deeply controversial figure, just at least, Henry Kissinger, after this quick break. Henry Kissinger died yesterday at the age of 100. He served as Secretary of State in the Nixon and Ford administrations. To say he had a complicated legacy is an understatement. As NBC News puts it, he earned a reputation as a sagacious diplomat, but he was also one of the most singularly reviled public figures of his age, one whose legacy is inextricably bound, bound up with bloodshed around the world. In the eyes of his critics, he was synonymous with the brutality of an American power and some of the costliest foreign policy decisions in modern history. David Korn is back with us. Thoughts? You know, Kissinger deserves praise for the opening to China, dealing with detente, and negotiating strategic arms treaties with with the Soviet Union. But his whole view of the world was it was his to play with and to manipulate. And it was realpolitik without any concern for what happened on the ground. To people. To people. So he's said yes to, you know, cooked up the secret bombing of Cambodia, mm-hmm. Cambodia, which was illegal, and about 150 to 500,000 civilians yeah. were killed in that. In Bangladesh, he told the Pakistani uh, military junta to, to go ahead and go in and, and, just, and, and, and slaughter Bengalis yeah. who were opposing them. 300,000 people there. Sort of the same thing in Indonesia with East Timor. He helped plot you know, CIA action to overthrow a democratic government mm-hmm. in Chile, mm-hmm. thousands dead. Salvador and he, Allende. You know, mm-hmm. Salvador Allende back in, 19, in the mm-hmm. early 70s. And when the junta came into Argentina and was disappearing people, torturing people and killing people, he said, OK. He even and, and all this is plotted out in memos that have come to light. None of this is up for dispute. Yeah. So if you start towering it, you get... You know, hundreds of thousands of maybe a million people dead through actions that he enabled, gave the green light to. And you think, you know, that would sort of cut you out of polite society. But mm-hmm, no, no, he remained, you know, a, a favorite of the op-ed pages mm-hmm. of a lot of the TV talk shows. And it you know, reminds me of this quote. It's attributed to Stalin, but he probably never said it. Mm-hmm. One death is a tragedy. A million million deaths is a statistic. Wow. If you do it big, you do you know, and you go bold. You don't get held accountable. He was never ever held accountable. Yeah. He never expressed regret. And even when Ted Koppel interviewed him earlier this year, when he turned 100, he kind of said, "Oh, why are you even bringing up Cambodia? That was 60 years ago." What? You know, it's like, and the young people today who are upset about it, they don't know anything. So he to the to, to his dying breath. He was never sorry. He was never been sorry for the, his geopolitical scheming yeah. that led to tremendous brutality and death at these other countries where, you know, Americans 
don't pay a lot of attention to. Well, and the thing about it is that not only did he never get kicked out of polite society, he still gets praised and consulted up to the end. People were still asking what would Kissinger do and, and taking his consult. Why would any political leader or politician want the consult of that man, given what he did? Even President Biden praised him today. I mean, he's President Biden was probably being nice to a, a, a man who had died at 100. But yes. it is it is shocking to me well, that he never earned the opprobrium he, of the, you know, literati or whatever. In he, he, he's the best example of how the establishment never really turns on one of its own. Sure. And if you look at the people who gave advice on the Iraq war, mm -hmm. going into Iraq and mm -hmm. afterwards. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of them still have very important purchase today. They do. You know, as op-ed uh, columnists and others. Mm -hmm. And no one's had to pay a price for that. And that led to 200,000 uh, dead Iraqi civilians and three to 4,000. And the creation of ISIS. And ISIS and mm -hmm. destabilization throughout the region. Yeah. So uh, there's something about that world. It protects its own. Once you're anointed mm -hmm. as a wise man, and, you know, you know there are... There were a few wise women, but usually it's wise men. Yeah. You, you, it's almost impossible mm -hmm. to lose that status. You're yeah. still, you have this, maybe it's a hypnotic power <laughs> yeah. to keep people impressed despite all the, and I would call it evil, yeah. that you that you were responsible for. My favorite meme about this is Jimmy Carter hanging on to make sure that he outlived <laughs> that SOB. And I'm, I'm well, you know, that's Jimmy Carter says. wanted to put human rights into foreign yeah. policy. Yeah. Kissinger was the to opposite. take it out. Exactly. David Korn, thank you, my friend. I appreciate you sticking around. That is tonight's readout. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.